Before we dig into this week's story, please be aware this is a particularly disturbing episode. There are several troubling topics covered, including child abuse, sexual abuse of children, sexual assault, and murder. The subject of today's episode, Leslie Allen Williams, he's one of those serial killers that I know of, but I don't know much about. In looking at his case, I realized that a big reason why he seems to have slipped from the public consciousness is that there was no trial to follow. There was no year-long media event surrounding attempts to prosecute him for his crimes. This is because Williams pled guilty to all charges, including multiple counts of first-degree murder. So while there was a media frenzy, it lasted only a few months, over the spring and summer of 1992. I found Williams particularly interesting because he knew he was bad. He knew that what he was doing was wrong, but he was compelled to do it anyway. In addition to being a heartless killer, he was quiet, polite, agreeable. He helped police in recovering his victims. He refused to participate in attempts to lessen his ability to receive anything other than a life sentence. When he was taken into custody in 1992, he told the police, I should be locked up. And he was right. While Williams would confess to both rape and murder, the death penalty was never an option. Michigan does not have the death penalty, and as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Michigan was the first English-speaking territory in the world to abolish the death penalty back in the mid-1800s. When I began working on the episode, I reached out to Williams. Did he have anything to say? Did he want to contribute to the story? We exchanged a couple of emails. He was very polite and reserved in his responses. He told me he didn't want to get in any trouble or cause any trouble. I was upfront with him about my interest, and he responded with the following, quote, Things have pretty much stabilized at this point. I maintain a low profile that presents little or no stress for anyone, either inside or out. Engaging as you have requested, in the subject matter as you've outlined, may well cause considerable disruption or harm of a nature unforeseen and immeasurable. I thanked him for his time and his response, and I didn't push the issue further. In this episode, we will explore the life and crimes of Leslie Allen Williams, known as Les to friends and family. Williams is responsible for four murders and several sexual assaults, among other crimes, and his record stretches back to 1971 when he was still in high school. So come with me to Independence Day, July 4th, 1953, when Leslie Allen Williams is born in Indiana to parents Dorothy and Lyle Williams Sr. Les will join his three older siblings in the Williams home. He was the second child and the second son of Dorothy and Lyle Williams. This was a second marriage for Dorothy. Her first marriage produced two children, both girls. And with Lyle, she would have three boys, Lyle Jr., Leslie, and Jay. Les grew up in the Detroit suburb of Garden City, a bedroom community in Wayne County. Garden City is a little town with some notable firsts, including being the home of the first Kmart store 
and the first Little Caesars Pizza location, which opened there in 1959. The Williams home was full of kids, and while Dorothy did her best to be a loving and attentive parent to her many children, her husband Lyle struggled with the role of father. Lyle Williams' children described him as cruel, harsh, and abusive. When reflecting on Williams' childhood, one of his half-sisters from his mother's first marriage told the Detroit Free Press that, quote, Leslie really was beaten much more by Lyle Sr. than the rest of us, and all of us were beaten a lot. An example of abuse at the hands of Lyle Sr. occurred when Les was very young, perhaps four years old. One of his older sisters broke a model car. Lyle Sr. lined up the children and quizzed them, demanding to know who was responsible. Les stepped forward and said it was him. Even though he wasn't responsible, he wanted to protect his older sister. The beating Les received was violent as Lyle Williams assaulted the boy using a strap, a board, and his bare hands. And to give you an idea of what kind of man Lyle Sr. was, When one of the girls was about five years old, she accidentally sawed a notch in Lyle Sr.'s workbench. When he found the mark, he took the girl in the backyard and shaved her head, leaving her bald. He did this so that she was marked just like his tool bench was. Because of the unpredictable and violent setting they lived in, Dorothy's daughters regularly ran away from home, fleeing to their grandparents' place they ran to the home of their mother's parents. But Lyle didn't like that either. He had no interest in Dorothy's parents being involved with the children, so he would retrieve the girls or send Dorothy to do it, and once they were back home in Garden City, he would punish them for their misdeeds. Lyle Sr. did not limit his abuse of the children to physical and emotional terror. He was also known to sexually abuse his stepdaughters. Lyle Sr. harbored a lot of anger toward the women in the house, in part because his wife, Dorothy, was known to engage in sex work for extra money that the family needed. Lyle both raged over her work and derived his own pleasure from it. It was in the late 1950s that the Garden City Police became involved in what was happening at the Williams' home, not because anyone was worried about the children and the beatings they received, but because Dorothy was bringing clients back to the house and the neighbors found out. During the police investigation, it was revealed, possibly by one of these clients, that Lyle had sexually assaulted his stepdaughters. This revelation led to Dorothy being arrested for prostitution and Lyle being arrested for, quote, indecent liberties. When questioned by police, Lyle admitted that, yes, he knew his wife was a sex worker. He told them that he often hid in the closet so he could watch her have sex with clients. As an adult, one of Dorothy's daughters stated that Lyle encouraged Dorothy's prostitution because he was a voyeur who enjoyed seeing his wife with other men. Lyle Williams was both angry and resentful of his wife's activities, but encouraged her to continue finding clients because he enjoyed watching and he needed the income generated by her work. In 1957, Lyle Williams pled guilty to charges involving the assault of his stepdaughters and was sent to prison in Ionia. At first, I thought he went to the state prison, but the Ionia Correctional Facility, or IMAX as it's sometimes called, that didn't open until 1987. 
Lyle Williams was sent the Ionia State Hospital. The Ionia State Hospital dates back to the 1880s and, per AsylumProjects.org, was originally called Michigan Asylum for Insane Criminals. However, the name was protested and eventually changed to Ionia State Hospital, since not all of those receiving treatment at the facility were criminals. Lyle Williams Sr. remained at Ionia State Hospital for several years to address his violence and inappropriate sexual behavior. At the time Lyle and Dorothy were taken into custody, Leslie Ellen Williams was four years old. With both parents incarcerated, the children were sent to live with Dorothy's parents. Lyle and Dorothy would divorce in 1961, shortly after Dorothy finished her sentence. After her release, Dorothy soon met a new man and was ready to be married again. Her beau, James Adams, would become her third and final husband. Adams had a home in Livonia, just a few miles from where the kids once lived with Lyle and Dorothy in Garden City. And Dorothy was excited about having her family together again in the new home with the new husband. Dorothy wanted all five of her children returned to her. She missed them terribly but child services would not give her custody of the boys, so the dream that Dorothy and James shared of settling down in his Livonia home to raise a family would not come to fruition. The kids were well taken care of, though. One of Dorothy's aunts, who lived out in Marshall, Michigan, adopted her girls, and her parents took in Lyle Jr. and Leslie. I'm not sure what became of Jay, her youngest child. Seeking a fresh start, James and Dorothy decided to sell the house in Livonia and head west to California. Once they were settled in a new place and found jobs, Dorothy asked her parents to bring the boys to her. Living on the West Coast, they were far from the grasp of child services in Michigan. Dorothy, Les, and Lyle Jr. were a family once again. Les was excited to be with his mother, and he clung to her, constantly fearful of losing her again. Sadly, his fears were well-founded. While things in California looked okay from the outside, all was not well in the household. Dorothy was unhappy with James. She returned to sex work and used that money to file for divorce. James was outraged. He was furious. He felt that he'd done everything for her. He'd loved her and protected her and provided for her and her children. He had moved across the country for Dorothy, how could she even think about leaving him? In the spring of 1962, on the eve of their divorce being finalized, James tracked down Dorothy, shooting her once in the head and then turning the gun on himself. A murder-suicide. Lyle Jr. and Les were alone in California, far from home and family. Leslie Allen Williams was nine years old. The boys were returned to Michigan, but instead of being reunited with family, they were sent to a facility in Albion, the Star Commonwealth School. Les and his brother, Lyle Jr., would reside there for nearly two years. As an adult, Les would say the facility was brutal, that he and others were sexually abused by staff who rewarded them with cigarettes or other contraband. He said, quote, I was a little boy who needed attention. My mother had just died. I didn't need a message of punishment and to live in an atmosphere of fear and violence. And listeners, I was not familiar with the Star Commonwealth School, but I learned it was founded in 1913 near Albion when Floyd Starr purchased a barn and 40 acres of land to create a safe place for homeless, 
neglected, and delinquent boys to grow up. Today, Star Commonwealth is a residential and outpatient center providing services to a wide range of children in need. After receiving treatment at Star Commonwealth, the boys were sent to live with their grandparents and resumed contact with their older sisters. With their mother's death and their father, Lyle Sr., incarcerated, the siblings were the only constant things in each other's lives. Even after being released from the state hospital, Lyle Sr. was not interested in his children. He lost touch with the family in the mid to late 1960s. And this is a good place to note that Lyle Sr. was Leslie Allen Williams' father, but he did not believe that Les was his child. He thought that his middle son, Leslie Allen Williams, was a bastard, a product of the sex work that he forced Dorothy to engage in. So Lyle Sr. never had warm feelings or an attachment to his son. Dorothy was the only loving parent Les had ever known and he'd had precious little time with her due to her incarceration and murder. In the 90s, after he was arrested, Leslie Ellen Williams will speak fondly of his mother, talking about sharing meals with her, baking brownies, spending special time together. As he entered his teenage years, he often thought back to their time together and how safe and loved he felt when he was with his mother. This was not a feeling he would ever experience again. Settled in with his grandparents, the next few years are mostly uneventful. Les attended high school, Wald Lake Western for those of you in the area, but he did not graduate with his class as he started getting in trouble at age 16. It was in 1970 that you first start seeing signs of who Leslie Allen Williams will become. First, he was caught breaking into a residence in Milford. He was arrested and given a year of probation. In 1971, he was caught breaking into a business in Novi. Since he was still on parole for the first charge, he was sentenced to one to five years in prison. Williams was incarcerated from August of 1971 through July of 1972. In 1973, Williams is caught breaking into a car in Commerce Township. And on February 25, 1973, he let himself into a home in Wixom where he attacked the female homeowner. Williams was still on parole from the earlier cases, but because he pled guilty to the charges, prosecutors dropped the assault portion and he was sentenced to serve 18 months to 10 years. Williams is sent back to prison and is released in July of 1975. Something to make note of here. If you aren't familiar with these communities, Novi, Wixom, Milford, Commerce, this is Oakland County and we are more than 20 miles northwest of downtown Detroit. We are way out in the suburbs, and these suburbs were largely rural communities well into the 1990s. If you look at the pattern of his crimes, Williams does not venture out of his comfort zone. He chose to operate in areas that he is familiar with. When he offends in Livingston and Genesee counties, his crimes take place at the edge of the county, still very close to the area that he considers home. Williams is out of jail less than six weeks when he commits his first known sexual assault. On September 6, 1975, he broke into a home in West Bloomfield. And again, we're here at the west end of Oakland County. Once Williams gained access to the home and overpowered the resident, he told her he had a gun, and then he raped her. 
Williams was apprehended quickly and sentenced to 14 to 25 years in prison. This is the fifth time he's been arrested. He should have been kept in prison for at least a decade. Sadly, no. Williams arrives in prison in April of 1976, and he will be released in January of 1983. And I need to pause here for a moment to talk about some rumors. I've seen Leslie Allen Williams mentioned as a person who could be responsible for the Oakland County child murders. Nope, this is not possible. Williams was in prison when the two female victims of the Oakland County child killer were taken. Williams also operated exclusively in Northwest Oakland County. So let's make a point of crossing him off the Oakland County child killer suspect list once and for all. We can also rule out Williams for the high-profile disappearance of 30-year-old Paige Renkowski in May of 1990, because Williams wouldn't be released from prison until August of 1990. And if you're wondering, no, I have not yet covered Paige Renkowski's case, but 30th anniversary of her disappearance is in May, and I have an episode about her in progress. When Williams wasn't incarcerated, he couldn't stay out of trouble. One of his sisters, actually it's his half-sister, but she was very supportive of him. She wanted her little brother to succeed and stay out of trouble. She described herself as his champion, but after the rape in 1975, she didn't feel that as a woman, she could stand by him. She described an incident while traveling by car with Lyle Jr. and Les. She was talking to Les when, quote, all of a sudden, Leslie turned away from her and went into a trance-like state. She saw something in his eyes that terrified her, and it was in that moment she knew something was very wrong with her brother. When they parted ways, she hugged him, her kid brother, and she asked him, please, stay out of trouble. Williams followed his sister's advice, but only for a few days. He'd been out of jail just two weeks when he kidnapped 20-year-old Jeanette Benson. He drove her to a cemetery, and Benson talked him out of hurting her. She was frightened, but she was unharmed. In September 1983, Williams is sent to prison again, five to ten years for assault, and an additional seven thirty years as a habitual offender. Leslie Allen Williams did well in prison. He sought vocational training and therapy. He earned his GED, finally completing the high school education he'd missed out on. Williams was polite, and he didn't create problems for staff. He wasn't getting in fights. You know, I hate to use the model prisoner cliche. He was. Williams would serve another seven years in prison, and he would be paroled on August 15, 1990. Again, it's because he was a good prisoner. He classes, he didn't fight, he didn't cause problems. He sought therapy for his issues, and he spent more than a year in sessions. It was his therapist who would eventually recommend him for release. And when I say he spent a year in sessions, even though he was in prison for seven years, the wait list to receive therapy in prison is long. So the year of therapy he received does not reflect a lack of desire on his part. It's quite likely he waited more than a year just for a spot to open up so he could start receiving treatment. Outside of prison again, Williams took a job at a gas station where he met several women that interested him. Williams was polite and nice-looking. 
Women liked him. He went on many dates, but he didn't have many relationships. I have to wonder if Williams was capable of being in a relationship, or if his emotional problems left him unable to participate in a healthy way. Once he was out of prison, he moved in with his uncle, Jim Jardine, and he talked about turning his life around. He said he would stay out of trouble. But for Leslie Allen Williams and the girls and women of Oakland County, the worst is yet to come. When Williams learned he was being released, he wrote a letter to the parole board. He thanked them and told them he would work hard to show that they did the right thing by releasing him. After release from prison, he went to live with his uncle, Jim Jardine. Jardine was raising his two granddaughters, aged five and 13. Jardine later said that Williams was never a problem. He never acted inappropriately, and he seemed mostly happy. And I am not aware of any inappropriate contact between Williams and the children he resided with while at Jardine's home. Now that he's out of prison, Leslie Allen Williams is able to control the urges that drove him. Well, he was able to control them for about three months, or 105 days. November 28, 1990. A 20-year-old woman from Brighton stops to use a payphone near the intersection of Kent Lake Road and Grand River Avenue. This isn't too far from the Kensington Metro Park. Williams was waiting and watching. He approached her, brandishing a knife, attempting to get her into his car. The woman started screaming and fighting. Williams retreated. He ran to his car and sped off. But he was not fast enough. Bystanders made a note of his license plate. When police ran the plate number, it came back to Williams. His parole officer was contacted, and a lineup is arranged. According to a May 31, 1992 story in the Detroit Free Press, Livingston County Sheriff's Detective David Rowe set up a photo array for the woman to view. But she didn't show up. So Rowe went to the home and pleaded with the young woman and her mother, saying, quote, If you don't do something, he will do this again. They responded that this isn't their problem, and she was not going to pursue charges. Without an identification from the victim, there's no case to be made. Williams will remain free, and, as I said, the worst is yet to come. A June 1992 story in the Howell edition of the Press and Argus newspaper identified Karen Rumsey as Williams' parole officer from August through December of 1990. Rumsey said she wanted Williams in custody while the attempted kidnapping case was investigated, but her supervisor denied the request. Rumsey then requested a copy of the police report on the November incident at the gas station, and the Oakland County Sheriff's Office sent her a copy of the report, but they redacted the name of the victim. She needed the victim's name. When she contacted the sheriff's department asking for the victim's name, they refused to release it to the Howell Parole Office. Rumsey was frustrated by their refusal to share information. When asked about her supervision of Leslie Allen Williams, she said that she monitored him closely and insisted that he both attend and participate in therapy. Remember, Williams has a history of sexual assault. They have a good reason to keep an eye on him, no matter how polite and mannerly he is during their interactions. The therapist who counseled Williams during this time has an office in Fenton, not too far from the home of teenagers Melissa and Michelle Urban. 
Williams will spot the girls for the first time while traveling home after an appointment, and we will get to their case soon enough. As far as we know, the incident at the gas station is the only attack Williams made in 1990. He will be arrested again in March of 1991, not for assault or for breaking and entering, but for shoplifting from the Meyer Thrifty Acres store in Brighton. Williams had attempted to steal a cassette player and two cassette tapes. And because I know you were wondering, the cassettes that he tried to steal were Uriah Heep and singer B.J. Thomas. Now, I had to Google B.J. Thomas, and he is best known for his 1968 hit, Hooked on a Feelin', as well as his cover of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. In May of 1991, Williams pled guilty to shoplifting and was fined $75. But his parole officer is not made aware of this incident for 11 months. In June of 1991, just weeks after Williams took a plea in the shoplifting case, his parole supervision is downgraded from intensive to average. Instead of twice-monthly visits with his parole officer, he only had to report once a month. At this point, his parole officer is a guy named William Mannix. Mannix said that Williams was never a problem. He described him as clean, low-key, mild-mannered. Williams reported every two weeks, just like he was supposed to, and he always had pay stubs ready to prove his employment. On the surface, Leslie Allen Williams is doing the right things. He's keeping his nose clean, he's working a real job, and most importantly, he's not reoffending. And this is so frustrating because we have now squandered two opportunities to put Williams in prison again. First, the attack in November, and then the shoplifting incident in March. Neither event resulted in any serious repercussions for Williams. Knowing what's coming, Knowing the absolutely horrific things he's going to do, it is so frustrating to see him slip away. May 24th, 1992, Memorial Day weekend. 35-year-old Carla Walters of White Lake is bringing flowers to her mother's grave at a cemetery in Springfield Township. Williams approached her and showed her a handgun. She agreed to go with him and he forced her into the trunk of his car. Thankfully, a bystander saw what happened, and they flagged down a police officer. They gave the officer a good description of both Williams and the vehicle. Williams was apprehended minutes later, and the woman, who was fortunately unharmed, was removed from the trunk of the car without incident. Police took Williams into custody, and Williams told them, quote, I should be locked up. On Monday, May 25th, and Tuesday, May 26th, 1992, police interview Williams. He insists that the only crime he's committed is the attempted kidnapping from the cemetery. Police obtain a search warrant and descend on Williams' home. They aren't sure what they're looking for, but they certainly know when they get there. As officers search Williams' residence... The station receives a phone call from a woman that Williams dated. She tells them that Williams was a creep and that he'd killed her cat and buried it in a field near the intersection of Buno and Charms Roads in Milford. An officer is dispatched to the site to see if there is anything of interest to the case. What he finds is the body of 18-year-old Cami Villanueva. 
Cammie disappeared from her South Lyon home in September of 1991. Williams had been creeping through neighborhoods in South Lyon looking for places to rob. The Villanueva home was near the intersection of Nine Mile and Pontiac Trail, just two doors down from the gas station where Williams were. As he checked out the house, a residence shared by sisters 22-year-old Trisha, 18-year-old Cammie, and 16-year-old Nikki, he found Cammie home alone. He tried the front door of the house and it was unlocked. Once he was inside, he confronted her and held her at gunpoint. It's then that Cammie realizes that she knows him. She recognized him from his employment at the gas station. This was the same gas station her sister used to work at. And while she didn't know William's name, she was familiar with him and could certainly identify him to law enforcement. Realizing his predicament, Williams forces her from the home and took her to the field off Buno Road. It was there that he raped and murdered the teenager, strangling her before concealing her remains, where they would lay undisturbed for months. The Villanueva girls lost their mother several years earlier, and their dad had a house out in Dearborn. While the sisters knew it was unlikely that Cammie would come home after being missing for months, the news of her recovery was met with a mixture of shock and relief. And in the pre-internet days before GoFundMes, an account was established at the local bank to collect money to pay for Cami's funeral. Cami Villanueva was not his first victim. Williams confessed to raping nine-year-old girl in August of 1991. He abducted her while she was out riding her bike. He covered her eyes with duct tape and took her in his car. He first assaulted her in the car, and then he spread a quilt on the ground and placed her on it so he could assault her a second time. When news about the incident reached the press, one of William's former girlfriends called police to say she thought he could be responsible. She left her name and contact information, but no one ever followed up. I'm certain she was dismissed as another vindictive ex-girlfriend trying to get someone in trouble, but looking at this now... Over almost 30 years, it's hard to believe that once again, Williams comes so close to being apprehended but slips away. This was the third opportunity that they missed out to put him behind bars. As more evidence is recovered from his home, William tells them that he wants to confess to his crimes. William says he will show police where he took the nine-year-old when he assaulted her. The location, near Loon Lake Road, is less than 60 yards from the spot that Camille Villanueva's body was found. Now that he's in custody, William's former girlfriend is interviewed by police, and she tells them she lived with Williams from March through July of 1991. She said that he was upfront about having a criminal record, but in her experience, he was kind and caring. Williams was actually a pretty good boyfriend, but there was an incident in July. She returned to their apartment after work and found that he had barricaded himself in there. There was furniture stacked against the door, and he was afraid that she was going to kill him. This was completely out of character, and honestly, red flag. Williams went so far as to hide the knives and unplug the telephone so she didn't have access to either. Two days later, she made the right decision. She packed her things and moved out. Williams' behavior was nothing she wanted to be around. In September of 1991, he called her up and asked to take her to dinner. She agreed to have dinner with him, but when he arrived, she noticed he had a different car, a gray Mercury, and that he'd shaved his mustache. 
Throughout the evening, it was clear that Williams was angling for them to get back together, but she wasn't interested and broke off contact with him soon after. On September 29, 1991, only two weeks after Cammie was murdered, Williams was driving in Fenton, along back roads. And he was traveling with a purpose. He'd been peeping at houses in the area off and on for weeks. And during one of his trips, he'd come across the urban home where he spotted two teenage girls that captured his attention. These were girls he'd seen out walking while going to his therapist who had an office in Fenton. And on that day, he couldn't believe his luck, because there they were, 16-year-old Michelle and 14-year-old Melissa. The urban girls had decided to go for a walk on a Sunday evening after dinner, maybe head up to the local gas station, buy a soda, see if anyone was around. Williams came across the girls as they were walking down the road. He drove past them, pulled into a secluded area, and waited for them to walk up to him. Then he jumped out, brandishing a knife, forcing them into his vehicle, and once he had them, he drove to the isolated cemetery. This is Oakwood Cemetery, located in Fenton, literally just up the road from the girls' residence, and this cemetery is located in Genesee County. The cemetery was a place where he could have abundant time and privacy to do as he pleased with the teenagers, so he sexually assaulted both girls and then smothered them. He buried their bodies in a shallow grave in a remote part of the cemetery, an area that he would revisit frequently to make sure the bodies stayed covered up. Williams would tell police that before he assaulted and murdered the girls, he spread out a blanket and the three of them sat and talked. He described them as, quote, nice girls. Williams said they didn't deserve to die, but he was afraid of returning to prison, so he had to kill them. While the girls' parents waited and worried, the sisters did not return home. In the early evening, their father, Patrick Urban, got in his car and went driving around and searching. He even stopped other motorists to ask if they'd seen his daughters. Patrick and his wife, Kathy, waited all night for the sound of the phone, their daughters calling to check in, or better yet, the sound of the door, Melissa and Michelle returning home. On Monday morning, they called police to report the girls missing. And I was wondering why their parents didn't call Sunday night to file a report. Well, it turns out the sisters had a history of running away. They'd once snuck out in the middle of the night with a bag of clothes and were gone for a couple of days. But this time? This time it felt different. When the Urbans called police, the agency didn't take the report too seriously. After all, the girls had done something like this before. Within days, friends and family helped the urban search for the girls, but to no avail. Little did they know that their daughters were gone. Even if a report were filed on Sunday night, it was too late to save Michelle and Melissa. On May 26, 1992, as police searched Williams' home, they found a photo of the missing sisters. I believe that this was a news clipping and not a Polaroid-style image. Police also recovered a ring that was later determined to belong to Cami Villanueva. When the bodies of the Urban Sisters were uncovered, they were next to each other in one grave, their bodies covered with a blanket. It was noted that one sister was naked and the other still wore clothing. Williams confessed to killing the sisters and to the murder of Cami Villanueva, and he also admitted to having sexual contact with them after they were murdered. 
While in custody, Williams wrote a lengthy letter to the newspaper about his actions. When I say lengthy, it was 24 pages long. The newspaper would print portions of it for the public to review. According to his letter, Williams revealed that he hadn't wanted to kill Villanueva, but she could identify him, and he knew that she would tell the police about his breaking into her home. Williams said that during their interaction, there was so much, quote, anger and hatred that had been, quote, triggered up from so deep, he said, quote, it was impossible to turn back. In this lengthy letter that Williams shared with the press, he does not describe killing as a form of release or of satisfaction. He said that killing filled him with, quote, a deep sense of remorse and self-loathing. And that remorse and self-loathing never went away. He said, quote, it creates an altogether new sense of low self-esteem, as well as a whole new and differently terrifying personality inside of you one you cannot control. The animal took over, and the real me began dying away. Williams said he'd never had the urge to kill anyone before Villanueva. He said that he sought out interactions with teenage girls because he'd spent so much of his young adult life in jail that he'd missed out on things. He said it was easy to connect with girls in their teens. He'd buy them cigarettes or beer, and they showed an interest in him. Women his own age didn't want a convict who drove an old car and worked at a gas station. But younger women? They gave him more attention, and he liked it. Now we have to turn to William's last known murder, although there are several sexual assaults and break-ins that he confessed to, but we're not going to get into those here. If you listen to season two of Don't Talk to Strangers, which came out in late 2019, it was a mini-season, only like two episodes, this case might sound familiar because we touched briefly on this murder during that mini season, and coverage of this case is what spurred me to finally give Leslie Ellen Williams his own episode. On January 4th, 1992, 15 year old Cynthia Jones, a sophomore at Milford High School, is out with her boyfriend Luke. It's about 8 p.m., and the pair are in Luke's parked car in Milford Central Park. They were approached by a knife wielding man in a ski mask and that man was Leslie Ellen Williams. Williams shined a flashlight into the car and forced his way into the vehicle. Once inside, he used plastic restraints, possibly zip ties, to restrain the teenagers. Williams took Luke out of the car and led him to a wooded area. Williams said he'd just robbed a store and needed Luke's car. He tied the teenager to a tree and returned to the car where Cynthia was waiting. Williams removed Cynthia from the car, and Luke watched them leave on foot as he struggled to free himself. Once he was free, he ran to get help, but Cynthia and the masked man were gone. With her disappearance, the community rallied around Cynthia's family. She was the oldest of several siblings. She was on the cheerleading squad and active in the local Students Against Drunk Driving chapter. These combined to make her and her family well-known in the community so it didn't take long for a reward of nearly $10,000 to be raised in the hope of bringing her home safely. Williams had other plans. He took the girl back to his apartment where he raped and murdered her. While Kemi Villanueva was strangled and the Urban sisters were smothered, Cynthia Jones died by stabbing. Williams murdered her just a few hours after she was kidnapped from the park. He would conceal her body in Milford, 
To hide her remains, Williams took time to dig a hole. The four-foot-deep grave was located near Buno Road, an old plank, in Milford Township. The body was left just two miles from where Cami Villanueva, his first victim, was found. With Williams in custody and confessing to his many, many crimes against women, fingers are pointed. People want to assign blame. He shouldn't have been released from prison. Well, his therapist said he was healthy and ready to be back in society. So his parole officer should have known and done more. His parole supervision should have been stricter. Listeners, we know that one of his parole officers, Karen Rumsey, she tried to get a case built against Williams for the attack on the Brighton woman in 1990, but the Oakland County Sheriff refused to share information with her on the case. So everyone from the governor to cops on the street had an opinion about where things went wrong and how Williams ended up walking among us. While Williams was on the receiving end of several lenient sentences and early paroles, there are a lot of reasons why this happened, from the brutality of his early childhood to the early paroles and the missed opportunities to put him back behind bars. None of these things excuse the horror of his actions, and none of them bring back four young women that he killed, nor will it make whole the dozens of women that he harmed and terrorized. I wish there was an explanation to offer. I would love something that we could point to and say, yep, this is it. Now we can fix it so it won't happen again. But there isn't an aha moment here, and it's frustrating for anyone touched by his actions. In a May 29, 1992 press conference, Oakland County Sheriff John Nichols said, quote, Leslie Allen Williams should never have been on the street. There are four girls dead because of it. The whole system needs to be overhauled. June of 1992 brought the funerals. The Urban Sisters Funeral Mass was held at St. John's Catholic Church in Fenton. The funeral for Cynthia Jones was held at the Milford Presbyterian Church and a memorial was established in Central Park to honor the memory of Cynthia and to remind the community of what they lost. Cami Villanueva, her funeral was held in Northville, near the home of her grandparents at Casterline Funeral Home. Just days after the four teenagers are laid to rest, Leslie Allen Williams announced that he wanted to spare the families the challenges of a trial. He told his attorney that he would plead guilty to all charges. So on July 7, 1992, just days after his birthday, Leslie Allen Williams made the first of several court appearances in Oakland and Livingston counties, and he pled guilty across the board. This would include four guilty pleas for kidnapping, first-degree criminal sexual misconduct, and first-degree murder, and first-degree premeditated murder. Williams' last court appearance was December 18, 1992. Leslie Allen Williams is only the second person in Michigan judicial history to plead guilty to first-degree murder charges. Williams had the opportunity to receive psychiatric testing and evaluation, testing that could lead to more lenient sentencing, and according to a June 24, 1992 story in the Detroit Free Press, when Judge Hilda Gage reminded Williams that he could be examined by mental health professionals and he could obtain treatment and possibly a lighter sentence, Williams responded, quote, I don't see any need for it. It's not applicable here. When Williams says that, 
that he doesn't see a need for it and it's not applicable here. It's not because he's afraid of a diagnosis. Leslie Allen Williams knows he's troubled. He knows that he's a sick individual. Like he said to the police when they pulled him over to find a kidnapped woman in the trunk of his car, I should be locked up. And that's what Williams wanted, to stop hurting people and to be off the streets for good. But maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Now, I'd like to talk about a June 18, 1992 piece about Williams in the Detroit News. I mentioned earlier that after some hesitation, Williams showed remorse for his actions and cooperated fully with the investigation. And when he was in custody, his uncle, Jim Jardine, the man who he'd lived with immediately following his release from prison in 1990, Jardine was really the only support Williams had left. He had alienated his siblings who were tired of dealing with his disturbing behavior and near-constant legal issues. Jardine really stepped up. He did what he could to encourage Williams to cooperate with police and to be open to questions so that the investigators and the public could learn from him. There was this bizarre media situation where Williams had newspapers and television news agencies competing for who he would communicate with which media agency he would take questions from, and it appears that the Detroit News would win that battle. And I'm not sure what benefit, if any, Williams received from this setup, unless it was to stoke his ego and make him feel better about himself after what he'd done. I don't think that his entire letter was made public, but part of what was shared focused on educating the public on ways they could protect themselves from people like him. Williams said that he wanted to help, so he participated in the only way that he knew how. He talked about himself, his process as a predator, and steps the public could take to protect themselves from people like him. Williams said that if you are attacked, don't panic. Keep your wits about you. He said the person attacking you has an advantage because they knew they were going to attack, even if it was a spur-of-the-moment decision to attack you. And he said the attacker is not rational, but you, you can be rational and being rational could save your life. Williams actually praised one of his victims, saying that she stayed cool and that she talked him down. By the end of the incident, he too was calm. He said she should be proud of the way she conducted herself. And Williams said that while rape involves sex, less than 10% of the act is actually about sex. Rape is about power, fear, and control. Williams asked why schools, churches, and community programs didn't do more to educate people on their own safety. He said, quote, We prepare for school, work, sports, and everything else. Why isn't there victim prevention as well? I'm sharing this portion of the letter with you today because I think it offers a glimpse into Williams' thought process, which is something we don't always hear from a serial killer. At the time Williams was taken into custody, John Engler, whose name you may recognize from the recent scandals at Michigan State University, Engler was the governor of Michigan. Williams' release and subsequent crimes led Engler to reform Michigan's parole board. Instead of being staffed with a team of seven civil service employees, try saying that quickly, seven civil service employees, the parole board would be made up of 10 political appointees. 
He also changed it so that convicts who were serving a life sentence with parole eligibility would have to serve 15 years of their sentence before they could become eligible for parole. This was an increase from the previous requirement of serving 10 years before becoming eligible for parole. The parole board would no longer conduct interviews with prisoners to make their decision about releasing them. They would instead review files and records to learn more about them. With these changes came a decrease in parole approvals. It also meant that nearly twice as many prisoners served longer than their minimum sentence. And as of this writing, Leslie Allen Williams is incarcerated at Carson City Correctional Facility in Montcalm County. He is 66 years old. And I'd like to leave you with a quote from Murray Burley. He was the grandfather of Cynthia Jones from Milford. And he said, I am more frightened of that system and the people that operate it than I am of Williams, because we don't know how many Williams they've let out. Already Gone will return on April 1st with a new episode. This week, research support provided by Haley Gray and audio production by Cesare Gray. For early and ad-free access to episodes, as well as bonus content, find us on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash already gone to learn more. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.